This is episode number 467 with Noah Gift, founder of Pragmatic AI Labs. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Crone, and holy guacamole, what a guest we have today, Noah Gift. Noah has worked in countless technical leadership roles in his 25-year career, including as CTO, cloud architect, and consulting chief data scientist. He held the roles at companies ranging from tech startups he founded to prominent institutions like ABC, Caltech, and AT&T. Today, Noah is founder of a consultancy called Pragmatic AI Labs, and he devises and teaches data science curricula at several of the most prestigious American universities, including Duke, Northwestern, and Berkeley. And he's written, on top of all that, eight books, yes, eight of them, including Python for DevOps and the forthcoming Practical ML Ops. Our conversation today centers around how data scientists can make a massive impact in their career with relative ease. We discuss the pros and cons of various educational options inside and outside of formal university programs for becoming a data scientist, as well as for upgrading your data science skills while working. We talk about how massive global problems like cancer, hunger, and climate change can be solved by operationalizing data flows and machine learning. And we talk about how you can attain more autonomy and freedom in your career. Despite Noah's enormous depth of technical knowledge, this episode is relatively light on technical specifics, making it ideal for listeners thinking of getting started in data science all the way through to senior professionals who are looking to learn how they can make a bigger impact than ever in their data science career and in the world, with bonus guidance for anyone who'd like to diversify and grow their income sources. All right, so many deep, exciting subjects to cover. Let's get into it. Noah, welcome to the show. I am absolutely delighted to have you here. It's been far too long since you and I have caught up. I can't wait to hear all of the latest. Where in the world are you today? Um, I'm in uh, the beach area of North Carolina, working uh, kind of near near the border of South Carolina and North Carolina and uh, on one of the barrier islands, which is always a fun place to be. Uh, that sounds pretty pleasant. Have you been doing that throughout the kind of COVID pandemic or is this a new thing? Uh, it's kind of a new thing in that uh, basically one of my ways to be creative is to spend time at the beach and uh, whether it's in Hawaii, actually when I wrote the book Pragmatic AI, uh, I actually was in Hawaii for three months and I, I was just kind of walking on the beach. And I was like, hey, I should write another book. And so I, for me, it's very conducive to kind of independent thought and creativity. Nice. That sounds great. Nice. Yeah. Not a whole lot to do in New York here. These past few months we're filming uh, mid April and I guess it's, it's going to start changing. So we, 
we've had a lot of vaccinations on Manhattan. And I just noticed in this kind of app, you can see the charts uh, locally as to how testing is coming along. And for months and months and months and months, we were over a 3% positive rate in Manhattan. And it's been just over the last week, it precipitously diving down below 2%. So the vaccinations seem to be working. It still won't rival being on a North Carolina or Hawaii beach, I'm sure, but at least I'll have something to do. <laughs> yeah, at the beach, it's pretty nice because there's uh, wind blowing things around and, you know, you're getting vitamin D and, you know, helps your immune system and there's nobody out there. It's, it's not bad. I, I, will, I will admit, it's, I, feel, I feel very happy when I walk outside and look at the ocean. I am not surprised. That sounds idyllic. So we've known each other for a while. I don't know how long now, maybe three years. So we were introduced to each other because we were both uh, lecturing in the uh, O'Reilly Learning Platform, which we both still do today. And I actually can't remember exactly what it was, but um, Dana Eiley at Pearson, who kind of manages the Pearson side of the live trainings in the O'Reilly Learning Platform, there was a specific reason why she was like, you've got to meet Noah Gift. I'm going to introduce you to him, but I can't remember why. <laughs> I think it was something, something to do with like Jupyter Notebooks or something like that. Oh, yeah, because you were using you were using Jupyter Notebooks um, integrated, I think, into the platform at the time. That was a new thing. We're using Jupyter Lab, I guess. Um, yeah, I think I, I was a lot of the material that I train with at the university or in books, I'll use actually the Google variant. So Google Colab. Colab, me too now, yeah. But at that time, I don't think, oh, maybe that's what it was. Maybe Colab was new. Oh, that could be it. You might have introduced me to Colab. I think oh. I did. I think I did introduce you to Colab. Ah, I love Colab. I use it all the time. Um, my entire, yeah, all of my teaching is done in Colab now. The, it, it makes life so easy. The only downside, and I hope that someday this can somehow be ameliorated. I don't know how tricky it would be from a DevOps perspective, which we're going to be talking about a lot in this episode. But if I could specify my library versions, like specify mm -hmm. a Docker file somehow, that would really then collab would be an absolute slam dunk all across the board. Because it's I worry that I'm going to be teaching online and some line of code isn't going to work and I'm not going to know how to fix it. Uh, and I'm going to have to like stop the class to figure it out because a library version has changed. Yeah. It, 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 I think the, the trade-off is that it's a managed platform. It's kind of like a Mac in a way, you know, where it's like, it's probably going to work. And so they'll, they'll, they'll probably have the version you care about, but if you really get, tr you need to get tricky, then things could get a little bit dicey. But then one fix is you could always just uninstall and reinstall using the shebang line or, or the uh, exclamation, exc exclamation point, right? You could just say pip uninstall, yeah, yeah. which is if, not ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically, yeah, exactly. So uh, so first of all, for listeners, in case you aren't aware, I'm probably most listeners know what a Jupyter Notebook is. So it's a way to easily execute typically Python code, but it also the name, um, uh, Jupiter actually comes from supporting uh, Julia, Python, and R, Jupiter. And it's a very, very popular data science tool that allows you to play around, script, print out charts, share notebooks with other people. And I absolutely love them as a teaching tool. I think they're the best. It sounds like uh, you agree, Noah. And yeah, Google Colab allows you to run them in the cloud 
all you need is a free Google login and you get access to a pretty beefy cloud compute server. And uh, the only two downsides are what we just talked about where you don't have complete control over the library versions. You don't have any control over the library versions, but typically everything you need is in there. Uh, the other thing is that at some point without interacting in the session, it'll time out. So after half an hour or an hour, and you actually, you've used Colab Pro, I've noticed. Mm -hmm. And so that gives you a longer timeout, maybe a few hours. Yeah, for, for me, it's the worth the 10 bucks a month to to actually get a, be, a better GPU and then also higher memory. Uh, and mm. then it doesn't time out as often. So, it, I mean, I use it so much that, that it's actually, I'm probably getting more than my $10 worth. Yeah, I bet you are. You're like... You're probably you're a disaster for them because you're like you're like the person who pays for the gym membership and always shows up and is using the equipment. <laughs> exactly, and, and one other kind of um, more of like a tr trivia type thing about Colab and, and Jupiter is that the first book that I wrote for O'Reilly is called Python for Unix and Linux, and it was in 2006. So I'm kind of dating myself a little bit here, and uh, and. Uh, Believe it or not, we used IPython for the whole book, and IPython is Jupiter. So yeah, that was yeah. V1 of Jupiter was IPython. So I've been using yeah. quote unquote Jupiter since like <laughs> almost 20 years ago, and and uh, and in fact, when we wrote the book, it's pretty funny that people said I think there was like a negative review that was like this is this IPython thing's going nowhere. Like, I can't believe you covered this. And it's like, boy, were you wrong? Like, you yeah. know, of course, it took 10 years for them to, to, to like, to, to, you know, to, to know that they were wrong. But, you know, this guy, I, I always think about that when someone says, you know, like any kind of a critique, uh, as I just go back, think about the fact that, like, well, yeah, sometimes people that are critical actually just don't know what they're talking about. Sometimes they do. Yeah. But, but, you know, it, it was just kind of a funny side story. Yeah, and so that uh, that name there, so it was developed originally just for Python, and so they called it IPython, lowercase i, Python. And then somebody had the the idea to expand it to supporting Julia and R as well, so hence the Jupyter name. But I actually don't know anyone who uses it for Julia or R. Do you? I don't, no. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pore over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are handpicked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy to read format, and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, you can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article, 
This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example, to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free and no strings attached, at superdatascience.com DSI. That's superdatascience.com DSI. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. Anyway, great tool for Python, and I guess other... Um, popular statistical programming languages as well. So I would actually say for it's actually probably in in this point really the go-to tool for ML ops as well. When we get to that. Ah, nice. Yeah, we're going to talk about a ton about ML ops later on in the episode, but first I want to get to a question that I think will be interesting to tons of our listeners. So we have a lot of people who are relatively early on in their data science careers. Um, they might be switching over from another technical field or maybe getting involved with, you know, quantitative things in general for the first time, excited about what can what you can do with data science and machine learning in the world and are jumping on, jumping on the wonderful train, uh, this, this journey, excited for all of you who are getting started. And so I get a lot of questions from audience members, listeners to the Super Data Science podcast who say, What's the best place for me to get started? And I specifically had a question earlier today on LinkedIn from someone who was wondering about specific master's programs for data science. So I think typically here we're talking about somebody who has already completed an undergrad in a quantitative discipline probably, and now they're weighing up the various options. So you have taught at tons of universities in the U.S., very well-known universities, Duke, Northwestern, Berkeley. And so do you have recommendations for people as to what programs they should be pursuing? And in particular, what about the cost trade-offs? So some of these programs are much more expensive than others. Uh, I didn't actually research this, but in the question the person mentioned to me, you know, it's about $70,000 for the Berkeley data science program, whereas you could spend $10,000 to Georgia Tech. And so... What are the advantages of paying more, if any? Yeah, it, it's a very complex question, but I'm, I'll see if I can tackle this. So <laughs> I think if you look at uh, a car, right? Like if you look at a Mercedes, for example, I used to have a Mercedes C34, which was a pretty awesome car. You know, it was zero to 60 and I don't know, 4.1 seconds and auto driving and all kinds of fancy stuff. And it's very expensive, right? <laughs> like it, but it was awesome. I got rid of it because in COVID-19, I didn't need to drive anymore. So I was like, yeah, I'm just going to get rid of this thing. But likewise, there's cars that are not $80,000. There's cars that are $20,000 that are incredible. But if you go to the car dealership, they're not going to give you necessarily an espresso. And then maybe, the seats, <laughs> you know, like the seats aren't heated, you know, and, and, or maybe they don't have like the, the semi-autonomous driving mode which could save your life, right? I mean, the, so in fact, in the Mercedes in particular, I remember one day I was with my family and I was driving on the Bay Bridge coming from Marin County into San Francisco and, and someone with a family 
was just not paying attention. They must've been tourists. And they literally just did one of those things where they, you know, the wheel goes like this, you know, when they go, and then I saw a 14 year old girl or, or 12 year old girl, like, look at me. I looked at her and I was like, Oh no, like I'm going to basically run into this girl. My car was smarter than I was. And it just stopped. Wow. And like, and I was like, Whoa, this saved some, some kid's life. And, and obviously wow. this is not me that did, this was the person driving the car that did this. So yeah, there's some, you know, there's some great uses for technology. I got it. So you take the Berkeley course because it will literally save a 14 year old girl's life. <laughs> well, I think, it, I think it's that there are, there basically is a cost structure that if you can afford a very expensive program for whatever reason, your company is subsidizing it or um, you're in the military, for example, at Duke, uh, I think is an exceptionally good data science program, uh, the MIDS program. And there's a lot of military people and they're subsidized or you get financial aid that, yeah, you're going to get a Mercedes level experience. I mean, it's going to be incredible. On the flip side, it's possible that in, in the case of um, my own academic career, I got a master's degree twice while I worked full time. So I'm more of a uh, kind of a, a work full time type master's student. And I'm very thankful that I was able to work full time because I was able to apply the things that I was learning. Uh, and also they're relatively low cost because they were all California schools. So UC Davis, mm -hmm. the graduate school of business, um, and then uh, also uh, Cal State Los Angeles. I got a master's in computer information systems while I worked full time. And, and I think it really just depends. I, I don't know if there's necessarily one perfect solution. And, and I think there's a lot to like about a low cost one as well. So like, for example, Georgia Tech, that is $10,000. I think that's incredible. So, so I don't think there's really a perfect right answer for anyone. And I, I really think that it really depends on the situation you're in, you know, whether you're working full-time, whether you're not, who will subsidize it. And, and I do think there's value in the premium, just like I think there's value in a C34 Mercedes, but I also think there's value in cars like a, you know, uh, a Nissan Leaf, right? Like I think they're, they're, you know, just, it really, it really depends on the situation you're in. I, I would lean a little bit towards just my own bias would be, I like the idea of being able to work while you're get going to school. If, if you can, it, you mm -hmm. know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And, and I think the future of education may be that there, there could be a change where just like we used to go to the movies two times a year and see Star Wars now we see Netflix and it's a subscription. I wonder if that might be something that's kind of cropping up. So, so that, so, so in a way, I, I think that that might be one of the things that's going to occur is that what if instead of getting just one terminal master's degree, what if you got a subscription and you got the equivalent of like four? You know, I love I, it. That yeah. sounds so useful in a in a career like data science, machine learning, any kind of software related work, hardware, computer hardware related work, any of those fields are constantly evolving to pay a subscription fee and get access to extremely high quality training, part-time, on your own terms. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a brilliant idea. I It sounds, hopefully, I'll have you on the podcast in 10 years and it'll be like the IPython thing where- Well, well that, you know, that's, that's literally what I'm doing. That, that's what that's so the the stuff that I'm working on with Duke is literally that which is 
is that I'm <laughs> trying to create this concept of of like lifelong learning where you know if you're you know if you're an athlete for example you don't just train for the olympics and then say okay i'm done i'm in shape that's not how it works that you have to keep training and hopefully you do it in a way that's healthy and you don't destroy relationships or you know cause too much stress or 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 you know you know, have to live you know live in a tent somewhere because you can't afford housing because you don't have a job and which you know athletes do but right. if you can do it in a maintainable kind of safe and and like you know repeatable way I think that's the ideal way for education. Yeah. So you wouldn't suggest getting so deep in the weeds on AI research that you don't even have a job and you live in a tent <laughs> and just see you're watching yeah. uh, Udacity lectures on your phone. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's just the the over optimization, you know, part of human nature that it's easy to potentially get too caught up into I need to study for four years before I can do anything. Versus, why don't you just try something and see what you don't know, and then study those things? Yeah, I think that these jobs. I think if you can get a relatively entry level job in the space, a data analyst, a business analyst, or something like that, be getting that hands on experience during the day and spending some time on the evenings and weekends towards attaining the masters or the quadruple Duke subscription masters. Um, any of those, I, I think, I do think that that's a really great option. And we've had extremely positive experiences hiring people in my company who, uh, so in one case I hired a data scientist, he was, uh, he already had an engineering background, uh, biomedical engineering. So, you know, quantitative smarts and had been doing Udacity courses in his spare time and had almost finished a master's, actually the Georgia Tech master's with an AI specialization. And he, he wasn't done, but we were able to convince him to come join us and work with us. And, you know, he's one of the most brilliant data scientists that I've ever worked with. In fact, he actually, he was, uh, he was on episode 459. He was the guest on episode 459 of uh, Vince Pataccio II talking about uh, uh, how you can use machine learning to fight climate change. Um, and then similarly, we uh, have a front-end developer who works for us who obtained her high school diploma, worked for a few years as a personal assistant, and was reading software development books as she was working as a personal assistant and did something like a 12-week or 16-week full-time software development boot camp. And she's amazing. She is great. So anyway, if there's people yeah. out there who are wondering whether you have to take a four-year degree to become a data scientist you don't well, well and, and again back to the the athlete analogy you know, is imagine if you're on your way to training for the olympics and it turns out that there's a specific regiment that your coach is telling you because he's an olympic you know a, a trainer uh, and and then he says you need to run i don't know um the 300 meter uh you need to run these 300 meters every month at this certain time for the next 12 months. And then once you get to the 12th month, then we'll, we'll submit you for Olympic trials. But at, at, at month 11, right. what if you're ready? Like, you know, like <laughs> it, it, it doesn't even make sense, right? Like if, if, yeah. if your body is capable of producing whatever, a 400 meter interval uh, or 400 meter run at, I don't know, 46 seconds, then 
who cares? <laughs> who cares if you're supposed to complete more? So, so th- there's some things I think about education and the actual like diploma itself that are a little bit shaky. And I think we're going to see that change. I don't disagree with you. I think it makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's talk about learning outside of a university entirely. So, you know, you do have all of these experiences creating data science programs at top universities in the U.S., but you've also created a lot of programs outside of universities. So some of the prominent names that you have created tons of data science, machine learning, software development content for include DataCamp, Udacity, Coursera, and O'Reilly. I mean, all the big names. And so, yeah, I mean, so what do you think about about those approaches? Do you think that there's added value to to the structure of a master's to getting that diploma or getting that bachelor's degree in data science? I I think they're like kind of going back to the original thing that we talked about. I think they're all valid approaches. So, you know, for example, I'll take something I know something about in, you know, as a hobby. So I'm really into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, although I haven't done it in a year because I couldn't do it. Um, And BJJ, it's hard to socially distance, eh? Yeah, that's pretty much the worst possible sport for, for that. And I you know, want to be responsible and, and, and not cause a problem. Uh, but that's kind of an interesting one because there there's so many different ways to learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. One is to just do it. And then you you really actually physically feel pain. And then you want to quit feeling pain because people keep basically getting you in bad positions and it doesn't feel good. And so you just kind of learn, and then you can also go to to uh, you know to like the, the 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 training sessions that you do at most gyms, where they kind of go through a lecture, and you go. To be totally honest, I found those to be almost useless. That mm. when someone lectures you, which again is is often what time happens in the university. And then the other one that I found the most value is really. Uh, in a way, going somewhere to a gym. So going to Hawaii, I've trained there, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with black belts or going to another city. And then just asking, you know, somebody there, hey, can you show me some things and I'll hire you as a trainer, you know, and then just show me like some things that you know and tell me what I'm weak at and what I can get better at. So I, I think it's really, if I had to pick the two approaches that are the best is that practice, which would be those learning platforms or your own job experience is there's no substitute for it. Like you can't, you know, learn your way out of practice. There's no substitute for feeling a 240 pound man on top of you who has a black belt, who is crushing your, your oxygen and you can't breathe and you're panicked. Like there's no like training for that. You just have to experience it. Likewise, in, in building software solutions or building systems, you just need to do it. And, and, and it's, if it's experiential, like a, I think a lot of the learning platforms are heading this way. I think that's absolutely the best way to learn. And you just can't substitute it. Even if you're getting a master's degree at Duke or you're getting a master's degree at Berkeley, you have to do it. On the flip side, and this is kind of going back to the value of some of these programs, if you do get experience with somebody who really knows what they're doing and you can have one-on-one attention, there's no substitute for that. So I think they're both very valid approaches. Great answer. I think you covered a lot of the big pros and cons beautifully and with a wonderful analogy. Love the BJJ analogy. All right. 
So if listeners aren't already blown away by the many things you do, and I am summarizing, I, when, I t- when I list the universities that Noah has taught at, the online platforms that Noah has created content for, I'm like only scratching the surface of all of them. I didn't want to like spend the podcast listing all the various, uh, all the various places he's taught. And then, so next point is the number of books he's written. So if you're not blown away by all of the courses he's taught, he's written eight books, four of them self-published, four of them with publishers, including the very well-known Python for DevOps published by O'Reilly. And I think I'd love to focus on talking about your upcoming book. So Practical Machine Learning Operations, Practical ML Ops, and uh, you're co-writing that with Alfredo Deza, who was an Olympic high jumper. Uh, so we have lots of sports analogies coming in here, I have a feeling. Yeah, and that really, the I met Alfredo uh, in um, early 2000s in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And at the time, I was bragging about, you know, how I was a good athlete in college. And, oh, look at this. And, you know, like I could high jump, uh, I don't know what I said, 6'6 six, six or something like this, which is, you know, okay. And then he goes, oh, well, I high jumped 7'3. And I was like, come on. He's like, were you in the Olympics? So he goes, yeah, I was. <laughs> and then I, I like, I, I look in Wikipedia, I'm like, whoa, he was, he was in the top 10. In fact, he was the number one high jumper in the world at one point at 18. Wow. And I was like, wow, like pretty impressive guy. And I, I really have, and then even the reason I, I know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was I accidentally learned it because I was working at a startup in the Bay Area and everybody at the, at the startup would go to the gym. And one of the guys there was an Olympic wrestler and pro fighter. And I just kind of became friends with him. And then he was like, hey, you should learn grappling. <laughs> kind of, and, and I just really get along with athletes because uh, they, they have self-discipline. And I, and I found that, that it's just really um, – and resilience, self-discipline and resilience is really what I find from athletes. And they're just so pleasant to be around. And so, yeah, I've done a lot of work with Alfredo and, um, you know, he, he's writing the book with me. And in particular, I think the focus of the book is really, I think, maybe different in a way than what people may think it is. And that I have a kind of a challenge, I guess, to humanity and that there. I think a lot of times we're, we, we are not focused enough on uh, results. And I, the, I think in particular, this will go into maybe a book recommendation uh, that I'll mention is the book uh, Codebreaker uh, by uh, Walter Isaacson is just an incredible book. And, you know, he's obviously a fairly famous author and written other books, biographies, Steve Jobs, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. But, but uh, I, yeah, I, I knew yeah. the name. And now that you mentioned the Steve Jobs, we actually, we had a guest on not too long ago. I think it was Michael Segala in episode 447. I'm stretching a little bit in my memory here, but I think he recommended the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. Great author. I mean, I mean, one of the best authors you know, of modern, the modern era. And what I really enjoyed about his book about Jennifer Doudna, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Um, I apologize if I didn't pronounce it correctly, but she's a Nobel prize winning scientist. Um, she, she won the Nobel prize, um, in 2020 and she invented co co-invented CRISPR 
and they use that CRISPR to create both vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. So we're mm-hmm. talking about not only someone who's got the skills, she won a Nobel Prize. I mean, that, that, that itself is a big <laughs> deal. And then there was a real crisis, which is it turns out that she needed to save the world. And then she did it. And, and then also the person that created the, um, uh, I forget what his name is, but the, the uh, scientist in, at MIT that, that, created, that helped create the Moderna one, they both basically, they operationalized their, their vaccine, right? So that, that's like, you know, so they have, just like we're doing with data science, we're talking about, hey, all this research is awesome. And it is, but then there are times when you really do need to actually save the world and save hundreds and millions of hundreds of thousands of millions of people's life. And she did it. And this other person did it as well. And I think that's the real kind of challenge with, with MLOps is that, you know, why aren't we doing that? Why, why aren't we actually doing what she did and actually thinking that there's some problems that are pretty big problems. Like one of them is cancer. Like why don't we actually really, really focus on using some of this technology uh, in terms of looking at things like, um, you know, radiology, you know, looking at the chest or, or looking at heart predict, you know, uh, whether someone's going to have a heart attack, there's all these things that really could help humanity. And I, and I feel like if there was a, a little more of a sense of urgency and a, a, a mind frame, you know, like a, like a different way of looking at things that that's how you get, I mean, here's, here's, here's where I'm coming with this is that if, for example, COVID-19 didn't happen, would these new vaccines, how long would they have taken to be developed? Oh, I, I mean, a vaccine for COVID if COVID hadn't happened? Or, or using that technology, you, you, right? Because it's a newer Oh, vaccine. a vaccine for anything using uh, the CRISPR, CRISPR, the CRISPR and yeah. R, these RNA techniques. That's also, that's something that's new here, right? About both of those vaccines is that we are injecting RNA into people exactly. to create... Um, proteins that uh, look like the proteins of a virus, of the coronavirus. And yeah, that's never happened before. Yeah, so really good question. Uh, and I, I absolutely love where, where you're going with this. I can't wait to talk about this more. This is amazing. This is something I think about all the time. Exactly the line that you're going down here on why isn't there a sense of urgency that everyone is sharing around climate change? Or rather, I think a lot of people have a sense of urgency. Maybe, you know, not everyone, especially in the US, I know that there's know, climate denialism kind of stuff going on. But a lot of people are aware of the issues. And you're like, climate change is bad. I would like to not, I would like to contribute in some way um, to not having an issue. But so few people take that same, that same fear that, that gets you clicking on clickbait Mm -hmm. about climate change and like, oh, flooding here and Manhattan's going under and Southern Florida's going under and, you know, those kinds of things. People read about it. You like reading about it. So news outlets like writing about it. A shockingly small fraction of people take meaningful action. I mean, I think there's consumer choices. So there's consumer choice things that people do. I think, you know, if you were presented with two options that were the same price and one of them was uh, using clean energy, the other one was dirty energy, I think a lot of people would make that decision, but we're not often presented with that decision. Um, and so good intentions aside, very few people are taking action. And so anyway, I'm interrupting you, but uh, I love where you're going with this. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very, another, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm a fan of, um, 
of, uh, of uh, clean energy for multiple reasons. Just from a technical perspective, it's just a superior technology. I mean, forget for a second, even climate change. I have Tesla battery backups at my house. I have solar panels. And basically, I don't pay for energy. And also, I cannot right. ever need power. Like, wh- why would you not want that? It's not like it doesn't even make sense to not want that. And in <laughs> fact, everything should be like that, right? It's just right. a better technology. It's like you know, and I think that's kind of the sense of urgency with even with if we're if we shift it to you know things like clean energy, is that you can build optimization solutions that know what the weather is and then decide you know how much to preheat your house and all the you know right. all kinds of technology. And I, I do think that it's it's the operationalizing of things that that really is, in fact, its own skill. And it, and it's kind of I think that it's easy to get into analysis paralysis with things because there are arguably some really tough problems with deep learning, and there really does take deep deep expertise. But it doesn't mean that you can't do the parts that aren't challenging in that way and just get something done, right? Like you know, implement a solution. I absolutely love that. If listeners are interested in, I, I, I don't think I've mentioned this yet since we've been recording. I think I mentioned it to you only to Noah before we started recording is that episode 461 with Sam Hinton is, there's a number of topics covered in that episode, but roughly the second half is focused on using machine learning operations for um, renewable energy purposes. So that's something that we've already kind of talked about a, a bit. And so that's probably why it was on mind, on top of mind for me. And I brought it up just now. However, um, do you want to talk about, you know, more of these applications? So kind of the cancer one, I love that. And the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, well, the BioNTech vaccine that, uh, Pfizer is, um, is mass producing these RNA based vaccines, tr- this tremendous potential even in, in cancer. And so maybe that's why yeah. you brought that one up specifically is yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, and I, and in fact, I'll give you a little bit of insight. I know some people that work in uh, biotechnology, former students. I have, um, you know, former colleagues from Caltech when I was working at Caltech that are now in the NIH. And in fact, at the NIH, uh, I'll just speak broadly because I don't want to necessarily be specific about a certain person, but broadly that one of the issues is that they give, I believe, $50 billion per year in funding. And that one of the things that would be great is if the data was more easily shareable. And so at this exact right. moment, there is no data lake. There's no right. kind of like, hey, we're going to all share all of this research in one spot. Every single research lab is a bespoke solution. And, and right. I think this is part of the sense of urgency is like, let's say for a second, you really did have to fix that problem. Could you fix it? Absolutely, you could fix it pretty quickly where you could you could create a centralized system where people could create research and share it and et cetera, et cetera. It's the context isn't correct. And I think the, the easiest context to think about, if you ever get a chance, is on Netflix, there's a World War II in color, right? And, and I, I watched that during the- I've watched that. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. 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 I so, recommend it. Yeah, so that, that that's the context, which is which is, I was just kind of putting myself into the mind of somebody in like England or something. It's like there are the worst people that humanity has ever created, <laughs> and they're coming for us. And it's not like squishy; like they're coming. They want to destroy everybody. They've already destroyed everybody, and now they're coming here. We need to have a very specific plan of action that has to work. And we can't 
take a long time to do it. And then they did it, right? And then they, so, so it's not like we can't, if the conditions are correct, as humans build incredible things. But I think part of it is that it's the context and like the, the sense of urgency. And I think with NIH in particular, and, you know, uh, health and, and cancer and all these things, that it would be great if there was more of an operational mindset where, where we, we really did, maybe the Biden administration with the infrastructure bill, it's like, look, let's solve this. Let's, let's actually get stuff working. And, and there are problems that are really, they're just execution problems. And that's what I think MLOps really is, is less that, that doing everything with AutoML is, is like the, the, the end-all be-all. In fact, I would say AutoML is probably 1% of a solution. It's th- that, but it, it's operationalizing everything is really, I, I think, the point of doing MLOps. Nice. So there are so many things that I want to talk about. You're absolutely blowing my mind. And it's crazy how aligned our thinking is on this. I don't know how much I've had these conversations out loud with people. The kinds of things you're saying uh, are the kinds of things I think about in my head all the time. You know, exactly that. World War II is something I think about all the time. It's something that like the amount of innovation that came out of World War II because of urgency, because of absolute need that if you didn't, you know, freedom could be lost. Or um, And another example that I think about a lot is, so I can see the new World Trade Center outside my, my window here in Manhattan. And I don't remember the exact stats, but I remember reading that 20 years ago when 9-11 happened, the... You know, infrastructure, uh, telecommunications, the the severity of the destru- of the destruction was enormous. But essentially, the telecommunication companies and the uh, you know the, the key utility companies, water, they were able to get things up and running again in something like twenty four hours or forty eight hours, despite this incredible amount of destruction. And um, and I often think like. What are all the what are all the engineers doing the rest of the time? <laughs> um, and you know why can't we you know every once in a while have these transformative bursts of creativity and innovation without the destruction? Yeah, and I and I think that's a and, and funny. Uh, this I was walking on the beach today, and I was thinking about something similar to what we what you just said, which is, and I would say this can maybe go into a deeper topic but uh that for some reason a lot of times when i'm walking on the beach i think of this expression desire leads to suffering and and it and it's this it's very yeah buddhism right and and if you think about the workplace it's full of suffering because of the fact that you want a promotion you want a you know a better job or you want your boss to approve of your plan and I would say that's one of the problems of capitalism and also any hierarchical organization, uh, education institutions, government institutions, is that you have to ask people's permission to be successful. And I think that maybe one of the solutions to the sense of urgency is more solo entrepreneurs, where, where you're basically, you, you don't ask for people's permission to be successful. And, and, and so if you really think of some of the, the really urgent solutions that were positive solutions they they were done where there was a lack of hierarchy and and i it, like in the in the case of covid-19 uh vaccines there's a real lack of hierarchy when it's like hey by the way everyone's dying <laughs> you know like there's no like let me ask for permission to to solve these problems 
And then, and then similarly, even if you look at venture capital um, companies, my experience is that there is there's a lot of talk about you know, hey, we're saving the world. Yeah. But in pra- but in practice, there's actually you know uh, not a lot of saving the world happening. It's it's really a lot about making money, and there's nothing wrong with making money, capitalism. But it feels like there could be a a different form of capitalism that is more impactful and, and, and focused on doing things that where you're still making money, you're doing unambiguously good things. And that's my focus of life right now is to do unambiguously good things. And I would even, it's funny, I was even thinking of like, maybe I'd write a fictional book at one point called the developers shrugged and, and basically <laughs> kind of like, cause you know, kind of like a little bit making fun of Ayn Rand, but then saying like, right. what if all the talented people, quit working for venture capital companies or quit working for big tech companies and then say, you know what? We're not going to do anything for you anymore because we don't have to. And we're going to work on impactful things that are unambiguously good. That's one way you could do this is quit working for people that are not doing things in an ethical way, if possible. I mean, that's a very preachy thing to say, but if your talent, especially if you have incredible talent because i've met tons of people who are incredibly talented you know maybe think about the fact that you owe the world something and maybe avoid a hierarchical organization i think also something that you didn't mention but maybe is one of the ideas behind your thinking there so everything you've said i think is brilliant and maybe that sense of urgency if you go out on your own and start your own business that forces a sense of urgency upon you to solve the problem that you've set up to solve. Exactly. I mean, if you can't create revenue, then you're, you're dead in the water. And, and I think revenue is really uh, solves a particular business problem, the sole entrepreneur's problem, which is, uh, can I make a product? That's kind of question number one. And uh, does it work? And then also, will someone uh, pay me for the product? I mean, those are kind of some of the fundamental questions of, of, uh, solo entrepreneurships. And it, in fact, it's kind of embarrassing if you think of other professions like roofers or, you know, people that do lawn maintenance, do they have a product? Yes, they do. They mow your lawn and does someone want it? Yes, they do. They buy it. (laughs) And and a lot of times there's, there's a lot of focus on, I think on the venture capital side is that it's just this silly game where people are like, Hey, look, I raised $30 million. It's like, why don't you just brag that you're you're you have a trust fund? I mean, wh- what does that even mean? <laughs> it just means nothing that you raised thirty million dollars. Instead, I think with with a and, I, and I'll even encourage students to this. I said you should at least consider being a solo entrepreneur and building something while you're in school, so that you have the autonomy. Let's let's say that you were able to to create a, a small machine learning SaaS company while you're in college and earn five thousand dollars a month. You might be done for the rest of your life. You might be done. And then you could actually have the autonomy to really think about what you're building or the kind of solutions and then work on something that's really helpful to the world. Nicely said. Yeah. I guess, uh, yeah. And that kind of option falling to that, that possibility, maybe following more to the uh, people who can afford to go to the Berkeley in the first place, but definitely something worth well uh, well, well, and I, and I, yeah. well i would say i mean in fact i mean i definitely my my background is that uh i remember 
when I was growing up. I mean, I was, we had so little money that someone gave us a couch when I was like eight. I remember, I still remember that. I was like, we had, we didn't have a couch. So, so I think that there is definitely an alternate non-independently wealthy way to approach things, which is if you're able to, from a very young age, start building, you know, um, some, not that you're trying to get rich, but you're trying to build autonomy, which is a very different thing because autonomy could mean that your, your cost of living is incredibly low and you just have some form of small income to, to, so, so that you have the ability to not be forced into bad decisions. And, and I think in particular, that's one of the, the problems is that if you're, the more money you make, then the more likely you are under someone's control. All right. So I didn't intend on going down this route and talking about this, but you just reminded me about something that I, you've definitely written about online. And I think you might've also incorporated into a book, maybe even into this practical ML ops book. But I, I know you talk about, you have three colors of income streams. Right. Yeah. So, so in, in particular, and I'm still kind of developing this concept, um, and I think about it still a lot. But like I call it red, yellow, uh, red money, yellow money, and green money. And in particular, a salary is red money. And the reason why it's red is that I think many people think it's safe. Hey, I got a job at a big tech company and I make eight hundred thousand dollars a year. That's true. You you have a lot of money, but but it, there, it's more complicated than that because now. They you and not that it's bad to, to to have a job, but but you you should be aware that it's actually less safe than you think because now they're providing your income stream. Yellow money would be doing consulting work, so I would encourage someone that is only earning a salary to also have some form of consulting work. It could be doing what you and I do, right? We're writing a book that's consulting, right? Or or you know doing. Uh, some kind of work with other people or having side projects or whatever. And, and what's nice about that is that you can potentially think of things more as a computer scientist and a computer scientist designs for failure, right? Like think about uh, red, red money or salary is, is a monolithic application on one server, right? <laughs> like it's just sitting there, like it could be really awesome, but it's on one server. And what happens if it goes down? Well, we know many examples of that where consulting, you're designing for failure. And I would say my opinion with consulting is never, even if somebody's giving you a ton of money, and I've had these situations where all of a sudden people start throwing a ton of money at you and I just cap it at 25% of my consulting. I say, no, I'm not, you're not going to become the, you're not going to turn into red, right? I'm going to keep you at the yellow color. And, and, and then I would say the green side is getting into can you wake up and walk on the beach and then continue to walk on the beach for four months and not do anything? That's green money, which is that passive income. It's either MRR, monthly recurring revenue from a SaaS product, for example, you know, a rental from a property, index funds, dividends, royalties. There's an unlimited amount of things, right? Where it doesn't even have to be technology. It could be anything. And I, I, I just never, someone, no one told me that when I was growing up, but I've kind of figured that out along the way. And I think that, not that, that I'm like Paul Graham, who has written some really controversial essays lately, someone should kind of, kind of like, uh, get a hold of him and say, Hey, quit writing these essays. I don't think you're, you're, you're doing what you think you're doing. But, right. but, but instead of saying everyone should be a billionaire, I think 
instead everyone should be autonomous, right? Which is if you're able to have autonomy with, and it doesn't even have to be a lot. If let's say you're you're getting some kind of, you know, maybe you have some stocks and they and they pay you dividends each year, and let's say that it comes out to be you know thirty thousand dollars a year in dividends. That just that might be enough that you can make best good decisions for the rest of your life, and 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 really focus on, you know, thoughtful work. Uh, so so for you know my son for example, I told him I'm saying the exact same thing to him is that you want to have the ability to choose to do things, not have to do things. I love all of that. I I'd read pieces of it, and I love hearing you say it out loud. Okay, so. Another big thing, that, and I'm actually going to use this as a segue back to the MLOps book and the big impact that we can make. So when I'm at a dinner party, I mean, those things don't, that hasn't happened in a year, but uh, you know, you're out for drinks, you meet people, people ask me what I do, and I always take a big inhale before I start explaining it. Because I, I, I haven't figured out, for people who are completely non-technical, if somebody is a lawyer um, or like a friend of my parents or, you know, when I, when people ask what I do, I, I don't, I often don't know what to say. Like, it's so hard to kind of explain what data science is if you're not, if you have no awareness of it as a starting point. And so something I say and then often regret is I say, I work in artificial intelligence. and. Now people will jump, people jump right away. You get most people, I think, I think it's fair to say most people um, who are non-technical, which is most people, <laughs> they, their impression of what artificial intelligence is, is from movies and TV. And so people, a lot of people have this sense that right around the corner, there are, there's an artificial general intelligence that has all of the learning capabilities of a human, which we don't even have a roadmap today to get there. Um, and so it's interesting, like this huge expectations disconnect between the popular perception of AI and what we have today. All right, so where I'm going with this is that for some reason, and maybe it's related to the automation of jobs, that kind of thing, this conversation often then leads to conversations about how unhappy the world is, how unhappy people are, why can't we make things better for people, everything's so bad. And I have people sometimes have to hold me back, like my girlfriend will have to hold me back on things because I'll say, well, what do you mean? How is the world worse now than ever before? And if you look at the data, there's very few things that are worse on almost any measurable outcome, health, longevity, autonomy, um, ability to put food on the table. We have never, nothing has ever been close to how good we have it today. Um, and that's actually around the world. And then if you think, okay, I'm in, uh, you know, if you're especially lucky to be in uh, a highly developed country, then you really, it's crazy that there's, you know, that there is this perception. You know, we, if we look at politics, you know, there's all this, uh, there's, there's a lot of issues in politics in the U.S. today. And a lot of, and many of these ideas are around, you know, it, things are unfair. I'm hard done by. And meanwhile, 
you know. So anyway, where I'm going with this whole thing and bringing it back to the MLOps thing is that people today, uh, objectively, uh, in terms of you know measurements of how people spend their week or spend their day, we have way more free time than ever before. We have way more leisure time. We have way more um, capital available as a society to invest in projects and ideas. Um, the, you know, the, the possibility for people to be making yellow money or green money in your um, definitions, it's never been greater, not even close. And it, there's, as far as I can tell, things are only going to get better and better on those fronts. So it sounds to me like a lot of what you're getting at in your practical MLOps book is look at all of this spare capacity we have as individuals in this society today. And how can we be harnessing that spare capacity to be solving the big problems that are facing us as a society? Is that right? Yeah, I, th I think that's definitely a, a theme of it. And, 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 I, and I think that part of the, the thing that's holding us back is that it reminds me of a story from when I was working at Disney Future Animation in um, Burbank, which is pretty cool, you know, building. There's like, I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but there's like a big hat. Like it's like the, 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 from the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I mean, it's a really, there's Sounds the seven dwarfs. familiar. Yeah. Like it, it's a, it's an iconic building. Like the dwarfs are holding up the building, you know, because the, you know, Snow White actually made the whole Disney franchise. And I mean, it's, it's mm. like the premier spot for, for, for feature animation um, in terms of, um, uh, you know, Disney is is it, and so it's kind of like a, a cool place, and I, and there's a lot of union people there, and I remember at the time that one of my jobs was to go in on a Saturday and like put like a CD or no a DVD into like these editing machines that were like two hundred thousand dollars, and like push a button and then and then run some like like kind of cleaning tool like a software like fix things on the computer tool, and I was like what. <laughs> It's like I was like like first of all what this is code and so I reverse engineered these these systems that weren't designed to be multi-user and then I made them multi-user and then um, I also mounted a network volume on them and then I created a network drive so that you could basically uh, either remotely or up go up to the machine just hold down the in key. And it would turn on network boot and it would automatically give it a script when it booted up and it would reformat the machine. It took 3.5 minutes. So basically, I basically automated our whole department into a three and a half minute automated <laughs> script. And people were outraged. I mean, just, just <laughs> like, like, like there were, they, and a guy that was in his 60s, he pulled me into an, a room. And I remember my boss was in there with him, a middle manager who is, he used to be in law enforcement, which, you know, is kind of interesting, but, um, he, he, we're in there. And then he was, I remember him saying, you know, you're going to script yourself out of a job and just shaking and just shaking and shaking and just enraged. And I, I remember the first thing that came to mind is like, I think maybe I could script you out of a job, but I'm not going to script myself out of a job. I wrote the code. <laughs> right? I, mean, I mean, how can that yeah. possibly be that, that like I'm going to script myself out of a job. I just wrote code that automated our whole department. And I, I think right. part of it is that people are thinking about things that that's a very silly example, but, but that people are thinking the same things with machine learning. It's, it's kind of like, it doesn't even make sense. It's like, you know, like that auto ML and deep learning are not substitutes for each other. 
but but both sides are not seeing this things clearly, which is that like in the case of um you know this person who was actually a very talented person so i i kind of said some negative things but I'll say some really talented actually the auto auto audio and video engineer and and like extremely talented i mean like ridiculously talented person it's like hey now you can focus on building really high end audio solutions all of your time like <laughs> the thing that i can't automate why don't you just spend all your time on that right because there's a need for it. And say the same things with like, you know, kind of this, this kind of false dilemma that, oh, Google has automel vision and like, you can't do that. Yes, you can. I've, I've taught over a thousand students to create automel with computer vision on, on Google's platform and they've made iOS apps and Android apps and they work great. <laughs> like, so that that's just, you're, you're thinking about the same thing. There isn't automel for self-driving cars. Like you, you're, you're kind of, people are kind of talking past each other. And I think that's the, that's the real issue, which is, is that of course you should automate dumb stuff. Of course you should, because then the real smart people can spend all their time on the stuff you can't automate. I said one thing we should definitely define. I mean, probably people get the picture uh, and it is something I've talked about on the show a lot before, but auto ML um, automated machine learning is where you take a, an algorithm that already exists. Um, so it could be a Google Cloud API and you provide it with some training, training data, data and it fine tunes, it figures out how to optimize um, maybe using some existing model weights. So using some transfer learning, but then also experimenting with characteristics of the model, the hyperparameters. And um, basically AutoML is a, it's an algorithm and there's you know, an infinite number of ways of building an algorithm like that, but this algorithm figures out how to optimize for your problem so that you don't have to. Yeah, so, um, so in, the case, in, the, in the case of um, very simple uh, single label detection of images, uh, you know, like, is this a flower? You know, is this a tulip or is this a rose? Or like, that, that's a perfect problem for something like AutoML that really could solve a problem. Let's say you're a gardener, for example, and you keep having problems with diseased crops. Wouldn't it be awesome if you yourself as a gardener knew nothing about machine learning and you just say, hey, I have all these pictures of like diseased tomatoes and I would love to build an application where I can just upload the images to Google Cloud, train it. I'll put my own labels on there and then now I can deploy it to my uh, phone and now I don't even need to put it in the app store. Nobody even needs to care about it. But now when I'm in this, in the, in the kind of the, the critical time period where a lot of my crops get diseased, I'll just kind of put this over it. And then I'll go, Ooh, uh Oh, there we go. You know, the fungus is spreading. I'm going to isolate this tomato. Like that, that, you know what that's like? That's like someone building a shelf in their house. And then to tell someone you're not allowed to build a shelf, only master carpenters can build a shelf. It's like, no, you can build a shelf. Like it's just false. Now, can you build the house? No, you can't do that, right? So I think I think they're just kind of people are just talking back to each other, and they're lacking a sense of urgency for like, why would you not let people solve simple problems with automation? Right. So circling back, the idea with the practical ML ops book is to allow people to take advantage of extremely powerful machine learning models. Um, through techniques like AutoML 
to allow people who who may not be able to build the machine learning house be able to take advantage of you know the 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 shoulders of giants the hundreds of thousands of people that have contributed to the machine learning capabilities that we have today allow somebody with relatively simple scripts to take advantage of all of that existing knowledge all of that existing training data and do powerful things with it and yeah. change the world i mean that's that's the industrial revolution right i mean think about there's been at least two industrial revolutions what was it 1760 to 1850 or something like that the first one steam powered you know automatic looms and all this stuff and and then the same thing happened with automobiles and assembly lines and all this the second industrial revolution i think it's possible we could have a third kind of industrial revolution with with all this machine learning and and basically it's again it's like imagine being the person that said that's that that um that automobile it'll never replace my horse my horse you know it's like come on you know like of course if something's a better solution we should use it but it doesn't it doesn't like negate these really tough problems and i so i would say in the book there's actually two core concepts that are slightly different one is that yeah if there's automobile solutions great use them but i would say that's maybe even 10% the other 90% which is let's even take the hard problems Let's also operationalize all of the hard parts, all the parts that can be operationalized so that the real experts can get their work and do something with it. Like in the case of, you know, the uh, Pfizer vaccine, let's get into production. Let's save human lives. Because I think that's a separate, different problem, which is that many experts actually are not putting their code into production enough because they're getting too precious about things. And that instead of building one model a month, why are you not building a hundred a day, right? So it's not that we're trying to replace you or saying you're not valuable. It's that why don't you just amplify your own work at a hundred or a thousand times? Right, that makes a lot of sense. And so as another example that I wanted to circle back to a long time ago, and I think maybe now is the right point. So we were talking about how the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, which is the largest federal funding body in the United States for scientific research. They are funding lots of different labs that set up their own compute clusters, their own data centers, build their own models. And so something that has happened a little because of the COVID pandemic and probably could have happened a lot more is sharing of data, say between hospital networks, research institutes, um, so for example, Sam Hinton, who was in episode 461, um, he was living in Australia working on a COVID project where the, all, almost all of his data, because Australia didn't actually have that many COVID cases, almost all of his data came from the U S and Europe. And that kind of sharing might not have happened if there wasn't a pandemic. So I guess that's an example of how we could operationalize aspects that allow yeah, oper- operationalize data operations, <laughs> uh, yeah. automate data operations. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, I mean, ba- basically, in a nutshell, I would say that that it's 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 kind of again almost like what's happening with politics, where you know you brought that you were alluding to this. I'm I'm reading the tea leaves here. Is that that basically like there are good points that Democrats have. There's mm-hmm. good points Republicans have. There's good points politically on both sides. And that if you only take the most extreme aspect of what someone's saying and use that as the argument, you're not using critical thinking. 
And so the same thing goes with uh, operationalizing machine learning is that, in fact, there are both very good approaches. Like, of course, self-driving cars are an incredibly complex problem that actually I would think will be solved. And it's great that people are working on it, but that doesn't mean that just because uh, it w- there, there's all these other things you can do to automate aspects of machine learning or DevOps, you know, automated testing, automated deployment, uh, monitoring, uh, you know, uh, scripting. They're, they're both equally valid points that should be combined together so that we have more solutions. Beautiful. So I think that that is a great point. So we can, you know, it's kind of an overarching summary of what we're discussing today. You can save the world with machine learning and machine learning operations. And you, going back to our early partner conversation, you don't need to stop everything you're doing right now, go back to school and, you know, pursue a degree full time. You can do this piecemeal. You can bit by bit chip away in your evenings and weekends, solving interesting problems. And it sounds like your forthcoming book, Practical ML Ops with Alfredo Deza, is a great starting point for people to make a huge impact with the skills that they already have. I'm really looking forward to that book being out. I also wanted to uh, quickly mention, you also have something that came out recently, your Coursera course, Building Cloud Computing Solutions at Scale. Um, do you want to fill us in for a couple minutes about that as well? Yeah, so so I spent the last couple years actually working on this course uh, because I've taught cloud computing now three times at Duke. It, you know, these are brilliant students, and many of them have gone on to you know big companies and biotech companies. And so I took a lot of the the feedback from people asking about this or that, and I put it into this course. And in fact, I think it's a like what you just mentioned. It's a probably the the perfect kind of course I would recommend to lead a foundation for operationalizing things. Which if you later then want to get into building stuff that probably you do, John, like getting super into like uh, you know the, the intricacies of deep learning, it's it's you now have a foundation for it, right? So just like you know, you could make the case for linear algebra and um, you know calculus being a foundation for doing uh, you know machine learning and and uh, deep learning. I would also make the point if you want to get stuff into production, you do need to know cloud computing in particular, and it's it's really is where where else is the data going to go, right? It's going to be in the cloud. So that's really the idea is that I think. That, that I, I want to help uh, people get the foundation. And it's the exact same uh, information, really, that, that, that we're covering at Duke in their data science program. I love that. And you summarized that perfectly. So I think what you're alluding to there is that I have something I've been working on for the last year, um, is this machine learning foundation series where I focus on linear algebra, calculus, probability statistics, algorithms, data structures, these kinds of these kinds of topics that you would uh, study in a lot of these, you know, if you did an undergrad or a master's in machine learning today, um, and you were really getting into the math, the low-level detail of these things, these are the kinds of prerequisite subjects that you would study first. And your way of going at it, where you learn some practical things first, I actually think that's the best way to go, where you're on the job doing things practically, because then you have a sense of, wow, look at these amazing things I could do now, what if I understood it a little better and I could dig in here a bit more? And so it's inter- So I call my, my curriculum machine learning foundations, but it's interesting having a foundation in how things work in the cloud and how you can be using MLOps to be 
doing state-of-the-art things without necessarily knowing the linear algebra underneath, I think that that's even a yeah, better yeah. way to approach us. I, I, I do, I, and we, I, we've talked actually about this in, at Duke with, with some of the people there, that this is my opinion. I don't want to speak for Duke, but my opinion is what you just said is or similar is that is that I think it's better to kind of go through the motions and start to kind of feel like what it's like to build something. And then if you can get the feedback loop mentality down, which is really what cloud computing does, then you'll you'll hit some some rough spots. You're like, hmm, well, I wish I went, I really understood calculus more, or I wish I understood SQL more, or I, or I wish I understood algorithms more. I think that's actually the right time versus if the first thing you do is like algorithm SQL, it's like, do you, you don't even know what you don't know yet, but it's good yeah. to first understand, do I know anything? And then realize, actually, I know some things, but I would like to know others more deeply. <laughs> and then that, that I, I, so I, if I was designing a master's degree in data science from scratch, I would, in let's say it was a three-year master's degree, the first year would be kind of like pottery class. Like we're making, we're making like pots and we're making stuff. And then, and then what would happen is in the summer, a lot of people would go, boy, I really need to know machine learning. I'm pretty bad at it. And then it's like, okay, well, let's go and get deep into the stuff because now you know what you don't know. I love it. That makes perfect sense to me. All right. So we've come a long way in this podcast episode. I feel like we could go on for hours and hours and hours. We're going to have to have you on the show again soon, Noah. But this has been amazing. I love everything we've covered from um, educational options through to MLOps and kind of tying those themes together right at the end here. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I'm very much looking forward to the next time. Sounds good. Happy, happy to be here. Ooh, I really could have continued that conversation with Noah for hours and hours. We only scratched the surface of his formidable wisdom and technical knowledge. In today's episode, we covered the pros and cons of various data science education options, including more expensive university programs versus more economical ones, and formal degrees versus practical online platforms. The consensus seemed to be that on-the-job experience is the most valuable education of all. Separately, we detailed a number of examples of how high-level abstractions of machine learning like AutoML enable data flows to be intelligently operationalized. This allows junior and senior data scientists alike to scale their impact with relative ease, allowing them to tackle the most prominent practical issues facing modern society, like cancer, food insecurity, and climate change. And Noah outlined his colored money guide to increasing your career autonomy, that is by shifting your income away from red salaried income toward yellow consulting or green passive income wherever opportunities permit. What an awesome set of topics. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Noah's LinkedIn profile, as well as my own LinkedIn and Twitter details at superdatascience.com 467. That's superdatascience.com 467. I'm always happy to connect with listeners, so please do connect and feel free to tag me in posts with your thoughts on the episode. Your feedback is huge for figuring out what topics we cover on the show. Since this podcast is free, if you'd like a hugely helpful way to show your support for my work, 
then I'd be very grateful indeed if you made your way to the Data Community Content Creator Awards nomination form. The link is in the show notes. Obviously, we'd hope you could nominate the Super Data Science Podcast for Category 7, the podcast or talk show category. I'd love my name, John Crone, nominated for Category 8, the textbook category for my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. And finally, I'd also love my name, again, John Crone, nominated for Category 2, the machine learning and AI YouTube category for my YouTube channel, which contains tons of free videos on deep learning, linear algebra applications, and machine learning libraries. The Data Community Content Creator Awards themselves are coming up on June 22nd, and I hope to see you there. All right, thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another amazing episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.